greet you each in Jesus' name this morning. I really had no intentions of preaching this morning, but this Isaiah thing, it says, here am I, Lord, send me. <laughs> it's a little hard to refute. And I only brought one sermon along, uh, and that happened to be in my Bible. So that's, that's I preached it at our home congregation <clears throat> a couple of months ago. Preached it at Yarrisburg sister congregation. The title of the message is The Three-Legged Stool. Now, I, at the other places, because I had more time, I, I got a three-legged stool that I could sit right here or here, a three-legged stool, and then lay the Bible on top of it. And so, since we don't have a three-legged stool to look at, I just, just use that, keep that in your mind, that's what we're doing. So if you remember a couple of months ago, uh, in our Sunday school lessons, it was about Christian responsibility to God uh, concerning uh, non-resistance and non-retaliation and the relationship between church and state, if you remember those uh, from our Sunday school lesson. And that led to some very serious thinking on my part, thank you, uh, about what we call the Anabaptist position uh, concerning these things, these subjects. What do we believe and, and why do we believe this? And uh, why do we believe differently than some other uh, Christian groups that, that, that we know of? And, and, what's the, and what's the difference? What's the interpretation? What, what is our view and our interpretation of Scripture that makes us different than, than some other um, Christian groups, or we'll say Protestant groups. Second Timothy two fifteen says, "Study to show thyself approved to God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth." Now, how do you rightly divide the word of truth? I think rightly coming to a conclusion, rightly dividing the word of truth, comes from studying the Bible with sincerity and with the aid of the Holy Spirit determining how to live the scripture out in daily life. And we spend most of our time in the New Covenant. Um, that's what our spiritual forefathers were doing uh, when they concluded that they needed to separate themselves from the state church, which in, in some cases was the Lutheran church, Catholic church, and, and they decided to through uh, studying the scriptures, that they had to separate themselves from those because they were not rightly dividing the word of truth. And they one of the main issues was the idea of infant baptism. And, uh, of course, the name Anabaptist means baptizers again, which means that they believed in a believer's baptism, and not being baptized as an infant. Um, now, before we go any farther into this whole subject, I, I want you to not get smug about the Anabaptist position. Okay, we have not yet arrived. I can tell you that without without any problem that we have not yet arrived. You know, we we look at people like uh, Meta Simons, and you know my. Uh, my bishop says that, you know, Meta Simons didn't get it all right. Well, 
So what? We don't. We didn't either. I mean, we were all we all trying, but the conclusion he came to, coming out of the Catholic Church, first generation Anabaptist or Mennonite, as they were named after him at some point. Uh, we have not reached the pinnacle of understanding in practical Christian living. We just just have not. It's an always an upward journey to understand the Jesus, the words of Jesus, and how to live them. It's 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 an up. It's just an upward journey. It's net. We have we never arrived. Now here, a year or something ago, Alice and I uh, visited the uh, Ark Encounter. Very, very good thing. And guess who the Ark Encounter uh, attracts? It it attracts a lot of Protestants. And so we're you know we're. Uh, we're sitting there in the main, not main auditorium, out where all the food and all these are shown, and we're observing a uh, what we thought perhaps was okay, um, or something similar to that. The wife was modestly dressed, long, cut hair, didn't have a veiling. The husband was clean shaving, short hair, no tattoos. Three or four very well-behaved children. Uh, you know, think. Probably homeschooled. I you don't know that, but you know you're, you're you're making all those suppositions. But you're but you're uh, you're thinking about that, and you could tell that they they, they you know they had a sense of, of of biblical knowledge, and they were trying to do what's right. Okay, but you know we look at them, and as Anabaptists, and we say like, well, that's them, and we're us. Okay, I didn't go talk to them. I should have probably to encourage them, but I didn't. Okay, but later on. While we're in the ark, we pass this lady, modestly dressed, wearing a European-style hair veiling, uh, shepherding three small children, also well-behaved. We thought maybe they were grand, her grandchildren. Um, so guess what we did? We approached her. We talked to her and, and tried to play the Mennonite game with her, but it didn't work because she was a first gen. <laughs> so there wasn't that, you know, like, who, you know, were you a Miller or whatever. Uh, it didn't work. But what was the difference? The people, okay. You, you can tell. We're just one of our people. And so, so radical biblicists, which is us, part ways with Protestants, starting with our view of the Bible. Uh, we both believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, but most Protestants view the scripture as what we would call the flat Bible. They put just as much weight on Old Testament writings as they do New Testament writings. And so they would read a passage like we studied this morning in, uh, in Sunday school. And they say, yeah, it's all right to kill your enemies. Sorry about that. And so they are unabashedly sending their young people to the okay. um, So this flat Bible theology allows for things like just war, divorce and remarriage, interlocking with church and state. This theology does not promote the two-kingdom concept that we're familiar with. See, Israel in the Old Testament was both state and church. And so Protestants believe because of that, using the Old Testament as a base that you can be with part it'd be an active part of both. And, and this 
on this doctrine is where the Anabaptists and the Protestant part ways. Because uh, we believe in a Bible that looks something like this. We believe that the New Testament is far superior to the Old Testament. Now, we don't throw out the Old Testament. There's a lot of good reading in the Old Testament. There's a lot of types and shadows. But when it comes to making uh, Bible doctrine for the New Testament believers, we use the New Testament. Okay? Uh, and we do our self-spiritual damage by making New Testament doctors, doctrine and practices based on ultimate theology. Read with me uh, Hebrews 8, 6 to 13. And this kind of tells you what the writer of Hebrews, which may have been Paul, thinks about the Old Testament. Verses 6 to 13. <clears throat> but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. And if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them upon their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and his every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities, where I remember no more. In that he saith, a new covenant he hath made the first old, and that which is old, that which decayeth and waxeth old is better to vanish, is ready, sorry, is ready to vanish away. I explained it this way. When my dad passed away, I became the executor of the will, the last will and testament, okay? Well, as it turned out, he had two last will and testaments, and of course the one was dated before the other one, right? So which one do you use? You use the last will and testament that is dated now, it's fun, it was fun to look at his old last will and testament to see what he thought back in those days and where, to, where his, some of his finances should go and, and how it all should be taken care of. And it was fun to look at that. But what we really come down to executing the last will and testament, you used the later one. And that's what we did. And this is the same thing the way I see here in Hebrews is, okay, we had an Old Testament, and that's fine. That's the way God worked in those days. Now we have a new last will and testament, and that's the one we go by. So I think that uh, Hebrews 8 is well articulated, very clear, that the new is better than the old. Now, let's define Anabaptism. The Anabaptist name was given to those who refused infant baptism as required by the Catholic and Lutheran Church in the early 1520s. Hebrew 11.6 but without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. When one believes that baptism is about God coming to us and not us coming to God, it makes a difference on how we view it. If, if baptism is about God coming to me, well then, who says I have to be 20 years old? 
why can't I be 10 years old or why can't I be three years old or why can't be an infant if that is when God is coming, if God is coming to you. But that's not the way we understand it. We believe the Anabaptist position is that it, it's a uh, symbol of us coming to God and God accepting us. And so for us to come to God, we have to make some kind of initiative. And, and baptism is, a, is just a symbol that we have decided to live in Jesus' camp, or, or whatever, however you want to call that. Um, so, hencing baptizing babies and preteens, get them saved as soon as possible, and once they're saved by baptism, some of the Protestant churches believe that once you're saved, you can't become unsaved. And so the earlier that you can get them saved as infants, then they're good to go. It don't matter how they live or what they do. And that's, that's a problem from the New Testament because that's not, you know, baptism is not the end of all things. Baptism is the beginning of all things. So you're not baptizing and that's it, you're good to go. It's the fact is that you're baptized, you've made a commitment for Jesus Christ, and now you've got a whole life to live. And so you have to, you have, you have things to do. You're, you just can't free will and sin at will because now you're saved, okay? Um, once you're saved, according to them, it can't be undone, so you're saved for eternity. That's kind of their theology. Some, uh, some um, Anabaptist in 1526, his name of Bolt, Bolt or says, I have never taught Anabaptism, but the right baptism of Christ, which is preceded by teaching and oral confession of faith, that I teach, and say that infant baptism is a robbery of the right baptism in Christ. So Protestants believe that getting, getting baptized is the ultimate goal at the end of all things. If you have eternal security of that, which you can't lose your salvation, then heaven is secure under any circumstances. Radical Christians believe understand that getting saved is not the end of the journey, but the beginning, and there is a life of separation to God that needs to be lived, and you can lose your salvation. Radical Christians became known as Anabaptists, not a name of their choosing, but put on them by others. Now, you go to Wikipedia, and you look up Mennonite. No, you look up Anabaptists. This is what it says, and I think they've got it pretty good. So whoever wrote this was, was, was doing well. Most Anabaptists adhere to a literal interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7, to which teaches against hate, killing, violence, taking oaths, participating in the use of force or any military actions, and against participation in civil government. Anabaptists view themselves as primarily citizens of the kingdom of God, not an earthly government. As committed followers of Jesus, they seek to pattern their life after his. I think that's pretty good. Yeah. I don't know who did it, but I couldn't have said any better. So then you come to, excuse me, the Schleitheim Confession of Faith, which is the earliest, most representative statement of Anabaptist principle by a group of Swift Anabaptists in Schleitheim, Switzerland, um, in 1527. This included seven articles as defined, baptism, excommunication, communion, separation from evil, pastors, non-resistance, and the oath. Then in 1632, the Mennonites met in Dortrecht, Holland, and expanded this to the 18 articles of faith which we are familiar with today. Okay? Um, 
which of which we use a variation today. I think probably most of us use the rendition of, of the 18 articles. So Anabaptism in itself uh, is a conceptual broad framework that includes Mennonites, Brethren, German Baptists, River Brethren, Hutterites, Amish, Old Order, Weaverland Conference, and many other groups. Believers in, are baptized into congregations, not Anabaptists. I want to emphasize that point. Believers are baptized into a church, not at a baptism as a whole. We're baptized into a church. Unfortunately, people can subscribe to the Anabaptist theology, be baptized into a church that falls under the auspices of an Anabaptist, and still not be saved. You can have a works religion that just follows whatever your church happens to say to the letter and still have an unregenerated heart. That's totally, that's totally possible. It's not uncommon in some denominations, and it can top into us as well. We're not exempt. Uh, my brother lived in a uh, Amish community in Jago County, Ohio, for a number of years, and there was an Amishman passed by his house every day who went walking, and he learned to know him a little bit, and he talked to him. Finally, one day he said to him, like, do you have to be saved to be part of the Amish church? Fact is, he says, you don't, you can't know if you're saved. You, you just hope that your good deeds outdo your bad deeds, and, and you just, you know, you can't know if you're saved. And my brother said, well, what about 1 John and 2 John? We, we, you know, we, uh, we know, we know, we know, we know, we know. Nope, you can't know. Nope. You can only do what you can and hope for the best. So I don't question that there are saved people in all of these groups. But being part of that group does not necessarily make you saved. Uh, to pull the plug, drive horses, live in a colony, or to, to, deny, do not, or to deny yourself of things and not become saved is a, and as, as it won't work. Your bishop, your ministry can make enough rules to make you holy. Salvation coming to the house. So, let's say that you're saved, subscribe to Anabaptist theology, believe in the superiority of the New Testament, you're a member of this church, uh, you, you're filled with the Spirit. First thing you, that, that comes up is that you believe Article 1 of the Articles of Faith, which says the Word of God is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. That's where we start. Can't start out by saying that there are good things in the Bible or that was for back in that time or whatever. You, you believe, you need to believe that the Word of God is the infallible Word of God. So, that's where we stand. Jesus says, we start there. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. That leads to the two kingdom concept, which is a concept which is pretty much exclusive to Anabaptism. A two kingdom concept that we are, we are of one world and, and then there's another world. Um, this is where we split from the Protestants. Because of our belief in this reality, we end up with at least three areas that become the basis for radical Christianity, and that's the reason for the three-legged stool. So you have the upright Bible, you have the superiority of the New Testament, 
And out of the superiority of the New Testament come some doctrines that you don't see necessarily as much in the Old Testament. And they are what drives our belief system as Anabaptists. So there's three doctrines that naturally outflow from this two-kingdom concept. Once you get the two-kingdom concept, and you think, okay, here's the kingdom of God, and here's the kingdom of this world, and they're, they're separate, there's three things that come out of that. And the first one is non-resistance, non-violence. Jesus said, if my, if my, well, I'll get to that. The second one is nonconformity, separation from the world and practice and its follies and methods, which is that, that, <laughs> that phrase is taken out of the uh, our discipline. It sounds a little antiquated. Our practices, follies, and, and methods, but you understand what I mean. <clears throat> the third one is a separation of church and state, voting, jury duty, campaigning, and so forth. All three of these legs are tied together. These, these three work together. It creates stability. And I don't think you would want to sit on a three-legged stool if all three legs were just wobbly and, 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 they, and they weren't tied together. But they, these three things, and when you believe the one, you also uh, ties you to the other ones. And I'll get into that. Um, it's been said by ministers long before my time that nonconformity and nonresistance rise and fall together in a congregation. And I believe that all three subjects rise and fall together. I'm, I'm convinced of that. So these are not merely concepts. And it's not something that's preached by the ministry. But it's actually how we live. This, this becomes a part of us. And this congregation, those three legs aren't just theology. They are people. They are living, breathing people who are the legs that hold up these concepts to the word of God. It's not, it's just not some wonderful theology that nobody uh, practices. This, these, these three things have to be practiced. Okay? We in our everyday living shore up or bear up the high standard of Jesus. We believe to understand and work with these principles in daily life is life and to ignore them is death. We need to live what we proclaim to believe. If we aren't people who allow our will and desires to fall on the rock and be broken ourselves, then it says that sometime the rock will fall on us because we have not been obedient to the truth, and so the rock will fall on us and we will be power. Or you can't, I don't know what judgment day is going to be like, but I don't think you're going to stand there and argue with the king of kings about what you believed and why you believed it and how, how what you believe is, is, is okay and that everything should be all right. I, I just don't think that's going to, I think that, the, that it will be the way it is and those decisions have to be made ahead of time. All right, I believe that all three of these have to be, I think all three of these construct a way of life that we must practice if we wish to enter into heaven. So then the next question comes up, which leg of a three-legged stool is the most important? Well, 
if you look at a three-legged stool and one leg is broke, then that is the most, or, or, or cracked, that's the one you're going to fix, okay? And I think it should be the same way for us. Leg one, none resistance. We have, we have a mental idea of what is right. And even though we don't get involved physically, we still take sides mentally. And I, I will frankly admit, when this thing started with Russia and Ukraine, kind of guess whose side I took. I kind of took the Ukrainian side, right? My son uh, reminded me that the Ukrainian government before this time was just about as corrupt as could possibly be. Okay. And he said, you don't know what God is doing and why he is doing it and whether he is punishing the Ukraine government for what they were doing or, or whatever. And I said to him, well, it still, I said, if I have a plate of food and you have a plate of food, whether I'm a Christian or whether I'm not a Christian, it's not right for you to come and take food off of my plate. Okay, fine. And that's what appears that Russia is trying to do is to, is to take food off of the Ukrainian's plate. And so we, we mentally think, well, okay, there's still these concepts of, of what's right and what's wrong. And so we, we still sometimes take part in uh, uh, what, what we, th it's our tendency to take, take up for the underdog. That's, that's just our tendency. And so we need to be careful about that. Stonewall Jackson attributed his southern winds to the providence of God. And Abraham Lincoln attributed the north victories to God. And I just listened to a short history, of, and I was, uh, World War II was possibly 85 million. If you were a Protestant, you would have joined into these Germans at bay or whatever it happened to be because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the right thing to do. Um, Mennonites did join. There were Mennonites, Russian Mennonites who died. In, it's a fact. That's not making that up. They did. Um, and I stepped beside a fellow at a, at a, one of our uh, company banquets one time, and I don't even know how we got talking, but he was telling me that he was German, and that he lived in the U.S., and he had family that were Germans that lived in Germany. And in World War I, the U.S. Germans was fighting family of the German Germans. I mean, they were, the families were fighting each other because that's just the way these things happen in, in war. Okay. And it's like, it's just so, you know, German Germans shooting and killing U.S. Germans and they're killing each other, family against family. And life is sacred. We believe that life is sacred and we believe that we have no business as radical Christians joining hands with unregenerate nations and fighting their wars. That's not, that's our, we're not of this world. To be followers of Jesus, we must live our lives every day practicing non-retaliatory living. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See that none render evil for evil unto 
Who? Any man. That doesn't mean only if you're not involved in Christian. As a follower of God, we to any man. But ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Romans 12, 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. These concepts are why we have the martyr's mirror. And I think martyr's mirror is falling into disuse, and I'm kind of sad about it, because it gives us a lot of insight on the way our forefather Anabaptists decided to live. These people couldn't hurt me at all if I didn't want them to. Thousands of Anabaptists have suffered death and torture rather than go back on Jesus and his example. Number two, leg number two is nonconformity. Romans 12, 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's, we're not just, we're just not um, unconformed, but we're transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit to be a, a different people that has nothing in common with the untransformed or the un or the conformed. James 4 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship to the world is enmity with God? Whoso therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. What, what I just read is not ambiguous. It's pretty plain. You know what the problem is? How do you make it happen? How do we be in the world but not of the world? See, there's no area of life that this doctrine doesn't touch. It includes modesty. It includes houses. It includes vehicles. It includes friends. It includes dress. It includes your job. It, it includes your places of recreation. It includes your politics. It includes your finances. It, gives you, it includes your giving. And if I missed anything, it includes that too. Okay. Um, and you know what that means? That means that a child of God will live an humble, unassuming life, not only in Harrisonburg, but also in Pinecraft, and also in Sarasota. We believe, we believe that we should act honorably in all areas of public and private life away from that, even away from their eyes. Of their... My brother told me of a story. What about this Mennonite minister who decided to go camping one weekend? And he got there late Friday night, and it was dark, and so he set up his camper in the dark, and they slept in in the morning, and in the morning when they got awake, they looked out their window, and guess what? One of their fellow church members was set up in a tent or in their camper right next to him. And these people were not dressed at all to what they promised in church standards, okay? Caught red-handed, okay? All I'm saying is that separation, a separated lifestyle, has got to come from the heart. It does not come from, from the discipline, okay? If a person lives 
two different lives, has and lives two different lives, I can only conclude that they are more afraid of their bishop than they are of God. And there's only one solution for that problem, and that is to repent and get saved and then deal with your carnal desires. Because dealing with your carnal desires without being saved don't work, okay? Next one, separation of church and state. Um, in the state of Pennsylvania, there is a man running as a Republican candidate for governor. And uh, it says in his profile on Wikipedia that he attends a Mennonite church. And I happen to know somebody from that Mennonite church. And so I asked, I called him. I was like, so does this gentleman just attend there occasionally, or what does he do? He said, well, no, he's a communicant member. I am pleased to be able to tell him or tell you that I take communion with him. And he said, and I know what you're going to ask next. What about non-resistance? You're a military man. I said, well, yeah, actually, I was going to ask that next. You agree to disagree. But yet, he's a communicant member. Um, I don't know what, I, I was so, I, I was so uh, flabbergasted, I didn't even, I didn't, I didn't even know how to reply. The only thing I can tell you is that if you would visit that church today as in compared with 70 years ago, there's, you would see none of the three legs standing. None of them. So that's how you, that's how you get to this point, okay? John 17, 14 to 17. I have given him, I've given them my word, and the world hateth them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. This is Jesus' high prayer, I believe. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He's talking about his disciples. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. We can't be missionaries to the world and join them in their sins. It's just, it's just impossible. You, you have nothing to offer them. You have nothing to offer them. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 5.13, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing, but to cast out and be trodden under the foot of men. You can have salt in a box or in a container, and it can be in there for five years. And you open it, it has not lost its savor. Okay, It don't just turn to nothing. It's, you, you still have salt. It, if it was moisture there, it, it might be a little hard, but it's not, it's still salt. So the question is, how does a salt lose its savor? Well, there's, there's two ways. By dilution. You dilute salt, and then it loses its potency. Um, there are Christians who concern themselves with entertainment, politics, goals of the world, but profess to be different. Interesting fact about natural salt. 
you're you're from down here in the valley. Uh, you, you probably all know about salt-cured hams because that, that came from down here, okay? I think it did. Uh, up when up where we lived in Maryland, you, you didn't get salt-cured hams. You had, to, you had to get them out of Virginia. My dad sold some of them. Very salty. And, and the reason they salted them is to, is to cure them. And it's the same thing that the sailors used when they left England or wherever to come to the New World. They salted all their, their food because it killed bacteria and, and kept it. The interesting fact is that every living organism, the way I understand it, needs salt. So if you give bacteria just a little bit of salt and not a whole bunch of salt, it'll actually thrive. Uh, whatever analogy you want to make from that, okay? Uh, but it, but it is a fact. You need to have plenty of salt for it to uh, stop bacterial growth. We cannot afford to allow Satan and the things of this world to dilute our salt. If we do, there comes a point where it is worthless as a preservative of society, and I believe without question it can and will be happened without a conscious effort of the whole congregation to maintain and practice biblical truth. And it's easy to name, it's easy to uh, the name of Christianity on every secular activity there is to justify their existence. But it really does nothing for the cause of Christ. Okay? You get, let's say, just for instance, let's say you get a Christian basketball team. Okay? What, what is all their effort doing for the cause of Christ? Maybe somebody knows. I, I don't. Or, you know, there's, there's, there's more things along that same line. Like, you, you tack the name Christian onto it, and therefore it's, it's, it's good. Um, that's dilution. The next time that you are confused by unbecoming behavior of either conservative Anabaptist or nominal Christianity, remember a, qu a quote from a minister by the name of Plank. We talk and reason our way to where in our hearts we've always wanted to be all along discarding our heritage and trashing Bible standards and pretending that we are on a spiritual journey. However, if your spiritual journey discards your holiness heritage, it is not a spiritual journey, it is a common case of back. The second way to lose our savor is by contamination. Contamination is different in dilution. Dilution is putting something in it that dilutes it. Contamination is putting something in it that is, that is undesirable, that is harmful. Uh, you know, would you want a little golden malrin in your uh, in your salt shaker? If you don't know what golden malrin is, it's fly it's a fly killer. What would you know? Would you would you be okay with that? No. Well, that's what that's what contamination is. Dilution is watering down a good thing. Contamination is adding of something that is not salt. Contamination is never good. When the, gospel, when the pure gospel story is contaminated by the addition of non-doctrinal opinions, political posturing, doctrinal error added in, our salt has lost its savor. If the gospel message is contaminated with misconduct, retaliation, political opinion, we might as well sit down. Our salt has lost its savor. 
So these three doctrines I see are a necessary part of the Christian life. With the help of God and the Holy Spirit, we make an honest attempt to preach and teach and live all the things that we have learned. Our message to ourselves and to the unsaved around us through our words and our daily living is just being filled with the Holy Spirit 